You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The birth of Jesus. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Saviour was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favours. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Jonathan. I'm the vicar here at this church, and it's uh, good to see you again. Such a, if I might say, good-looking bunch of people, and, and smart as well, very sharp. Um, in fact, as usual, you are ahead of the game this morning. Uh, we're in our second week of Advent, while the rest of the church around the world is only beginning Advent today. So we're a week ahead, and that's because... Uh, The fourth Sunday of Advent this year falls on Christmas Eve, and so we wanted to set that aside a time for a special service uh, on Sunday morning where we're going to kind of clear out some space, invite you to bring picnic rugs and bean bags and have a a family service together. So we just had to shift our Advent a week early, and it just means, as usual, we're ahead of the game, all right? So this is, this is week number two. If you were here last week, you would have um, heard us talk about the uh, theme of hope, and this morning we'll talk about peace. The next two Sundays will be on joy and love. These are the four great themes of Advent that Christians have been sort of focusing on for time out of mind. And our aim in this series is to, um, to talk about what life is like in the in-between. That's where we live. That's where all the Christians who have ever lived live, is in, in between the first advent 
Jesus' birth, and the second advent, Jesus' return. Remember, advent means arrival, and so we're in, in advent, we're both casting our minds back to his first arrival and casting them forward to his second arrival, his second coming. Now, what, what I want us to kind of grasp today is, even though we are living in this in-between time, the, the here and now is shaped by and infused with both Jesus' first and second coming. So they're not sort of like distant poles and we're stuck in the middle, far removed from both, but they actually, the Bible tells us that both Jesus' first and second coming influences and infuses our life in the here and now. So this each week, that's basically what we're going to talk about. We're going to, this morning, talk about the theme of peace and how Jesus' first and second advents first and second arrivals, first and second comings, how they, how, they, um, how they help shape our experience of peace in the here and now, in the in-between that we live in. And uh, so that's the basic outline for each week. We'll look at the first coming, the second coming, and then talk about a little, like maybe two or three or four this morning, ways that we can cultivate hope or peace joy or love in the here and now, in the in-between. Good? All right, let's jump into it. So let's talk a little bit about the first coming of Jesus and how his first coming, his first advent might provide us with peace in the here and now. So let me just re-read a small part of that passage that John read for us, a passage very familiar to us at this time of year particularly. So from Luke's Gospel, he talks about the encounter that the shepherds have with angels, messengers from God. It says, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keep watching at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. It goes on. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. Peace on earth to people he favours. So how does the first advent of Jesus, how does the birth of Christ provide for us peace in 2023? The first thing to uh, understand is that um, God has said that it does provide peace, peace on earth for the people he favours. So this is God's own perspective on things. Angels are, uh, angelos is just the Greek word for messenger. Angels are are messengers sent from God. They are um, used by God to deliver his words to people. And so this is not speculation from a bunch of celestial beings. It's not even just words of prophecy from people on earth, but this is God's own words about 
what Jesus' birth means for people on earth who know and love God. He says, peace on earth is what Jesus' birth brings. And this is uh, hard for us to believe at times, I think, because the time of the year when we most talk about Jesus' birth and the fact that Jesus' birth brings peace, we sing many carols that speak of this truth, but we do all that in the midst of a season that is marked not by peace, but by panic. I went to, I made the fatal error of going to Water Gardens yesterday. And the no- just the noise was enough to drive me mental. But the, the number of people... I'm, a, I'm not a good shopper any time. Uh, I, I hate it with a passion. I, I physically die inside of a shopping centre. I can, I, can, I can hike across mountains uh, without stopping for days... But get me in a shopping centre, and within minutes, I'm just like dragging my feet along the ground, like a. Say again. I think that's right. I think that that is right. There's something in the DNA. But it's that's that's it, right? Like this time of year, I don't know how many messages I've, I've kept my ear out for it, thinking about this sermon coming up. But so many of the messages that the marketing machine is constantly like pouring out into our whatever feeds we are um, consuming. So many of them are uh, like the messages: hurry, hurry, Christmas is coming, hurry, like don't miss out. Not much time left. Um, That's the message that's constantly being reinforced. It's the opposite. (laughs) It's the opposite of the message of Advent. Panic. It's so bizarre, if you think about it, that the greatest feast day in the history of humankind, the, the Christ Mass, has been kind of mutated into this season of, of panic. It's a, it's a tragedy. I just had a, um, a premonition this morning, which I hope is like some sort of portent of things to come. But I've noticed, and you, you probably have too, like just how big... Black Friday and the other one, Cyber Monday, and all of that has become. And I'm hoping that all of the Christmas consumerism and rush will get sucked into that black hole, and at least we'll have it removed from this holy day that is meant to be characterized by peace and contentment, not consumerism. So anyway... The, uh, one of the four great themes of Advent seems to be so out of sync with our experience of this time of year. But I don't think that's the way God wants it to be. 
I think God wants us to reconnect with the message of his messenger. That Christ's birth means peace on earth for all men and women on whom his favour rests. That is, those who have been called by him, those who have been adopted by him, those who have been loved by him. Peace is ours because of Jesus' first coming. It's probably helpful to think about the message of the angel in the context of the people of Israel at the time. So you, you know that the people of Israel throughout their history, just, if you just read the historical books of the Old Testament, you'll see that they were a, a harassed people. They were, uh, they were constantly under threat. They're a small nation, fairly insignificant nation, surrounded by great superpowers. And so you have this constant threat to the safety and security of Israel from, from its neighbours. And it, the, the Old Testament is written in a time of empire building. It was written in a time where, you know, war and genocide and um, the kinds of things that would alarm us today were just part and parcel of, of life. And you, so you have Israel constantly under threat and you have Israel who are constantly disappointed by their leaders. They so want to have a leader who will, um, who will, who will kind of be their, um, well, Messiah. Be a, an anointed king who will lead them in a way that's after God's own heart. They thought they might have it a few times along the way. They had great leaders like David, who you know, was said to be a man after God's own heart, and yet he disappointed them greatly. Succession of judges and kings and prophets, all of whom let them down. And into this context of, of probably quite a lot of cynicism about whether, in fact, God would ever deliver them a leader who is worthy of the, um, the standing they had before God as God's chosen people. 700 years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Isaiah gave them this message, a promise of hope. He says to them, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah's vision is astonishing because it's totally out of keeping with their expectation. Their expectation of an earthly king who would lead them to earthly triumphs, establishing an earthly kingdom, Isaiah comes along, Isaiah even, he comes along and says, this is, the, this is the leader that God is going to provide. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. So that for a harassed and vulnerable nation, Isaiah makes this promise that God's man will be a leader who is beyond their expectation in terms of his capability and faithfulness. 700 years later, a baby is born in a shed 
who is the embodiment of all of those things. Prince of Peace. What does it mean for us to worship a God, a God-man who is born into the world with those kinds of titles? How does it influence our experience of the here and now, the in-between, the now and not yet, the shadow lands that we live in between those two great events What does it mean that we follow a Messiah, that we worship a God incarnate who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace? You might be tempted to think, well, the reason that we are living in this panic rather than in this peace is because he, yeah, he came, he was there, he was only there for a short time and then he left. So perhaps while he was there, while he was the embodiment of these things, while he was that leader that God had promised, while he was Messiah walking around on the earth, there was a measure of peace, but he's gone now. He's, he's, he's left us. We live in the in-between. We wait for his coming again, but in the meantime, we don't have much to give us peace. And that would be the case, except that Jesus, before he left us, made a promise to us. So remember from John's gospel, Jesus says to his followers, as, he, as they sort of come to terms with the fact that he's going to leave them, he says, I have spoken these th- things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Here today and gone tomorrow. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. That's a promise from Jesus. That's a promise from the Prince of Peace. My peace doesn't go with me. I leave it with you. My peace I give to you. And he doesn't give as the world gives. How does the world give you peace? It gives it to you very fleetingly. Do you ever say that to someone? You know, like the, the kids were out for a birthday party today and it was just so peaceful at home? You're talking about a slice of your time. I was so peaceful. Peacefulness is so elusive in our modern day, characterized by as much hurry as you can get into every 24-hour period. Productivity is the measure of whether you are successful. You are what you produce. So peace for us is fleeting if if ever you experience it in the first place. But Jesus says, I don't give this peace to you as the world gives. In Dota Spa, we'll promise you an hour of peace as they do whatever they do to you. 
Facials is what they do. Massages. They used to have a sign on their shop when they were in the main street here that said, heaven is open or closed, depending on whether the shop was open or closed. But it's a, it's a very uh, vaporous kind of promise. Jesus says, I don't give to you as the world gives to you. His peace is left with us and it is a preserved peace. Preserved by God himself. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 verse 15, let the peace of Christ to which you are also called in one body, so he's saying you as a church are called to the peace of Christ. Now let the peace of Christ rule your hearts and be thankful. So your, your heart has a ruler and it's not you, <laughs> if only. Your hearts are ruled, each one of us have our hearts ruled by all, like, like, a, like a, a legion, of rulers. And Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. It's an act of surrender. The peace of Christ is already ruling, and all you need to do is let it rule your heart. So Jesus' peace is a peace he leaves with us. He doesn't give it as the world gives it. It remains with us. Our problem is that we deny its rule over our hearts and instead accumulate for ourselves all kinds of other rulers that make us harassed and anxious and worried and all of the antonyms to peace that you can think of. I'm afraid that's the sorry state of the world. How about the second advent? If that's what Jesus made possible for us to receive in his first coming, what about the second? A lot of this is fresh in my, your mind because we just worked through the book of Revelation, so I won't dwell on God's provision of peace in his second coming, his judgment, the new creation. Just a couple of points to pick up on. The second advent, Jesus' second coming, gives us this guarantee of final, pervasive, all-encompassing peace. That's that your new creation life, which is most of your existence, eternal life is characterized by consistent peace. Not wavering peace or seasonal peace, but pervasive peace. All that would disrupt peace in the new creation has been expelled, judged, destroyed. Again, Isaiah has this vision 700 years before Jesus, he has this vision of this final peace and it's kind of become sort of proverbial people 
use this kind of language just in the, the culture in general. He talks about the Messiah and what he will bring about in the new creation. He says, he will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. For all of human history, for all of human history, um, tribes, nations, groups of people have had to train for war because war is inevitable. The, the, the history of humankind at one level is the history of war. Never again, Isaiah says. The second coming of Jesus is the end of all military training. It'll be redundant. There's no point. Never again will nation take up sword against nation. They'll take the weapons of their warfare and turn them into uh, tools for cultivating the earth. This is why we yearn for the second coming of Jesus. This is why, in one respect, a a season of panic around Advent provides a good contrast to that which we're really yearning for. Advent is about praying the prayer, come Lord Jesus. So the backdrop of panic, at, at the very least, should serve us in making us aware that this, this life that we have right now is not the life that we were made for. Here we have no lasting city. We, we seek a city that's characterized by peace, governed by the Prince of Peace. That's what we want. Is it what you want? Yeah, me too. So in the in-between, as we look to the second coming, we're given this counsel, which is um, given to us in light of what is inevitably going to happen, guaranteed to happen. God is going to bring peace on earth, a new earth, a forever earth, forever characterized by peace. In the meantime... Paul says in the book of Romans, here's his advice to the church there and to the church here as well. If possible, a couple of qualifiers here. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. That's a vision of life here and now, lived in light of the second advent of Jesus. Jesus is going to come and do justice on the earth. Vengeance belongs to him. He will repay. He will establish peace in the midst of chaos. He will expel all chaos, all evil. 
So with that sure and certain promise, Paul says, what you're called to is, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't seek vengeance. Don't seek retribution. You know that God is gathering up every wrong done in the history of the universe, and he will do justice in every case. And so, in light of that, in light of the second coming, live at peace. Now, there's a great tradition in church history for Christians to be pacifists, to be committed to nonviolence. Whether what you think about that in terms of its political and military ramifications is a whole nother discussion. But at the very least, all of us need to come to terms with this commandment. Do not avenge yourselves. I love how, um, I love how uh, realistic Paul is with this. He's realistic because um, he knows in spite of the fact that Jesus left his peace with us, provides his peace via his Holy Spirit, in, in, in spite of the fact that he made these promises to his disciples, John 14, um, he also knows that Jesus said to his disciples before he left them, not just, I've given you my Holy Spirit and my peace, I live with you, but I send you out as, wolves among, uh, as sheep among wolves. The reality is that we do not live in a world that is marked by persevering peace. Uh, we live in a world that is characterized by punctuated peace. And so he says, knowing that we are incapable of living perfectly as Christ lived, he says, if possible, as far as it depends on you. This is so freeing because if you're in the midst of a conflict with someone, so much of the um, stress you feel is trying to control them and their response and their feelings. And Paul says, forget about that. Just focus on you. You know, the psychologists call it your locus of control. Your locus of control is you. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone very freeing in a way. God's vengeance is coming. It's coming with his second coming. The second advent will usher in eternal peace, but only because God will first judge all evil. So in light of that, we're called to live in peace. Now, I just want to get a little bit practical. I've just got four things that I think we might be able to do if we're committed to living a life of peace, if we're actually yearning for peace as an alternative to panic, 
then I think we can do some things to help cultivate. Again, you know, I love that word cultivate. It's this idea that you uh, can participate with God in the work of producing fruit in your life. The fruit itself, the fruit of peace, is a gift from him. It's, It's his gracious provision. But you can participate in cultivating that peace. You can do the groundwork of fertilizing the soil and pulling out the weeds and, I don't know, the other things that you do to make a tree grow and produce fruit. So each week, I'm going to give you some work to do. This is work. It's not enough just to say, uh, though prayer is a big part of this, as, we, as we'll see, it's not enough just to say, God, please give me more peace in my life. God wants us to work towards establishing peace in our life. It's going to take some effort. So I've got four things. Let's just run through them. Number one, reconcile. The foundation of true peace is reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Without that first step of reconciliation with God, I don't I just I, I can give you no guarantees that you'll experience any peace in this life. Because the foundation for all peace is first reconciling, that is making peace with your maker. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that you could spend most of your life trying to cultivate peace in your human relationships, peace in your, I don't know, uh, inner life, your heart, your mind, working towards a kind of Zen-like existence, moving to Nepal, becoming a monk. You could do all of those things and never truly find peace because the foundation for peace is peaceful relations with the Prince of Peace. So first step, if you're here this morning and you're not yet reconciled to God, if, you're, if you haven't yet come before him and received salvation from him, then the Bible says you're an enemy of God. And enemies of God experience no lasting peace. The good news of the gospel is that while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so all we need to do is accept and receive what he's already achieved for us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next step, one from going from reconciliation with God, is then sometimes, perhaps always, the hardest step, which is reconciliation with one another. Reconciling with God is one thing because he has never wronged you. He has never hurt you. Reconciling with others is more difficult because they have and they do and they will. 2 Corinthians 13, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind. 
be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Peace begets peace. First we must reconcile with God in order to have any chance of peace, but then we must reconcile with one another so that the God of peace will be with us. It's hard for the God of peace to be at work in a church where there is adversarial relations, unforgiven sin, grudges held, pain unaddressed. Reconciliation means reconciliation with God and with one another. It is a hard thing to be part of a church where reconciliation is sought between people. Seems counterintuitive. You'd think that that leads to a more peaceful church, and I'm sure it does on the whole, but short-term, actually pursuing reconciliation with brothers and sisters is messy. Makes for a messy church. Much easier to do what churches have done for hundreds of years and just sweep everything under the carpet, put it on a fake smile on Sunday morning and just get through the hour and a half so that you can go home and be yourself again. Much easier to do things that way. But to actually actively love somebody enough to say to them, it really hurt me when you did this. That's a little more messy. I guess the metaphor is a little bit like surgery. In order to remove the cancer of unforgiveness, you first need to cut the body open. It bleeds. But it's the only thing that can lead to lasting healing. Reconciliation. Next on the list is surrender. To have and experience peace in this here and now, right? In this, in this in-between. We must exchange worldly burdens and concerns for the peaceable calling of following Jesus. This really is pretty binary, you know? If you want, to, if you want the world to be your Lord, if you want to follow the world and the ways of this world... Uh, I can't see anything in your future except burdens, concerns, anxieties, worries, constant um, comparisons with those around you. What Jesus offers you, which is the, the way of life he calls you to as his follower, is something very, very different to that. He says it himself, ready? This is what he says. This is the life. This is the life that's uh, characterized by following him. Matthew 11, come to me. Just check yourself. Are you weary? Are you burdened? Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In contrast, 
to the yoke of this world, right? The yoke like that goes on an ox that has to pull through day-by-day existence to get the things done that it needs to get done in contrast to the yoke of the world, which is burdensome, heavy, characterized by hurry, Jesus says, take that off. Exchange that for my light, easy yoke. This requires surrender. Peter says to his church, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. This is surrender. It requires humility. It requires a grown man to say, I can't handle it. This life is too much for me. All of the expectations that I've put upon myself and the world's expectations of me are too much for me and I am withering under the weight of it. It requires humility and and surrender to say, God, take it from me. Take, Take it from me. Surrender. One of the hardest things we find to do in this life Humble ourselves and surrender. This is an act of the will. Okay, this is not just a thing that you can pray for and maybe one day God will give it to you. This is an act of the will. You have to actively surrender to God. Some of us hold so tightly to the things that are slowly destroying us, and for some reason, we are so reticent to give them up. It's bizarre. There's this little story in a, in a great book that we, we listened to the audio version of as a ministry team this past year, uh, a book called God Smuggler by Brother Andrew, a, a Dutch missionary smuggled Bibles across the Iron Curtain into Eastern Europe. Uh, I think the book's about 60 years old now, and it's worth every cent. He tells this story about how um, uh, he went, he signed up, enlisted for the army, the Dutch army, and found himself in the South Pacific, and he ended up getting shot. He actually wanted to get shot. He used to wear this big yellow hat and he was determined to try and get killed. He was so just inwardly destroyed by his experience of war and killing and killing women and children and he was just, had become a a drunk, was trying to annihilate himself with alcohol or just by getting a bullet in the head and as much as he tried to get someone to shoot him, Um, the big yellow hat never got a bullet put through it he did get shot in the ankle and he was taken to a field hospital and there were a bunch of nuns working there and tending to the injured and this nun sees Andrew and perceives that he has in him this turmoil 
And he tells him, she tells him a story about monkeys. I think I've got it here, let me read it to you. Sister Patricia, I think it was, or Patrice, says, says to, to him, Andy, I have a story to tell you. Do you know how natives catch monkeys out in the forest? He says, my face lit up at the thought of a monkey story. No, tell me. Well, you see, the natives know that a monkey will never let go of something he wants, even if it means losing his freedom. So they take a coconut and make a hole in one end just big enough for a monkey's paw to slip through. Then they drop a pebble into the hole and wait in the bushes with a net. She goes on. Sooner or later, a curious old monkey will come along. He'll pick up that coconut shell and rattle it. He'll peer inside, and then at last he'll slip his paw in the hole and feel around until he gets hold of the pebble. But when he tries to bring it out, he finds he cannot get his paw through the hole without letting go. And Andy, she says, that monkey will never let go of what he thinks is a prize. It's the easiest thing in the world to catch a fellow who acts like that. And then she says, she got up, put the chair back by the table. She paused for a moment and looked me straight in the eye, Andrew says. Are you holding on to something, Andrew? Something that's keeping you from your freedom? That's the question I want each of us to think about right now. Ask yourself, are there burdens or expectations or a vision of life in this world that is keeping me from my freedom? And you might even know that it's keeping you from your freedom but you are holding on to it as a prize and you are unwilling to let it go, even if it means that you'll be locked up for the rest of your life. See, the monkey is really no different from us. To surrender what we have determined for ourselves is like the purpose of our life to surrender those things in favor of peace with God is just a little too much for some of us if not all of us we feel like we're giving up too much Jesus says come to me Lay down your yoke and take mine upon yourself. Peter says, cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. It's an act of the will and it's going to be something you're going to need to do over and over again until Jesus returns. That's the truth. Reconcile. Surrender. And we got meditate. Meditate. Ruminate. I love that word. Ruminate. You know what a ruminant is? Goes moo. A ruminant is any animal that chews, uh, chews a cud, right? Like they're just constantly chewing. It's because they eat grass. 
vegetarians will tell you it's got no nutritional benefit whatsoever. And so they have to chew and chew and chew just to get... That was a joke. Come on. <laughs> I, they got to chew and chew and chew, right? And, and that's what the word ruminate means. It's also what the word meditate means. It literally means chewing on. So meditate, ruminate, chew on God's words. Fill your mind with his promises found in Scripture. I know this is the kind of advice you expect the kids to get, right, in their, in kids' church. Pray, read the Bible. But I've got no better advice for you. Like, there's, there is no upgrade on the kids' talk. And I know everyone here already knows this. And I know probably most of us don't do it. Ruminate. You can ruminate on all kinds of things. Most of us ruminate every day. We ruminate on the things that are annoying us, the things that are worrying us, the things that we have made the kind of goal of our life somehow. I think we should instead ruminate, if you're going to ruminate, ruminate on God's promises. Psalm 119, great peace. Great what? Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. John 16, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. Jesus says the things he says so that we we might have peace. Ruminate on his word. This is an act of the will. This is something you'll have to decide to do every day. Just going to copy and paste that for the rest of this sermon. It just is. It's going to require some effort. The good news is, if you take all of the effort you use to ruminate on all of your worries and exchange it with ruminating on God's word, you'll find you have a surplus of energy and time to give to this kind of thing. That's the economics of discipleship. Reconcile, surrender, meditate, and pray. There is a strange peace. Contentment is another way of saying it. That prayerful people have. It's strange because it's so rare. But if ever you've met a prayerful person, it's really weird to be around them. They have this way of looking at the world that is characterized by contentment. One of the greatest gifts that I was ever given was a period of my life, four years, where Three times a week, I visited nursing homes and retirement villages and just sat with old and dying Christians. And the, the thing that remains with me to this day more than any other was, for the most part, interacting with those people, was what, what impressed me the most was the contentment in the face of sickness, um, or impending death. 
Prayer is about renewing your trust in God's sovereignty over all things. If God isn't sovereign over all things, don't pray to him. That would be a waste of time. Asking God to do stuff that he can't do because he's not powerful enough, don't do that. But if you pray to a God who is absolutely sovereign over all things, sitting on a throne, ruling, reigning over all things, then you can pray through your anxieties, worries and burdens. You can cast them on him. Isaiah 26, addressing God himself. You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. Philippians chapter 4, don't worry about anything. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Don't worry about anything, but in everything, that is in every circumstance that is worrying, in every circumstance full stop, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's a promise. I'll leave you with this picture uh, that just came to my mind, and that is a picture of the in-between that we live in, the now and not yet. Uh, I was on the east coast of America, lived there for a couple of years, and at one point I was there on the east coast in the, in the summer. It's um, incredibly humid, and you get these big, big, big summer storms, and... Um, and there was one that came through, I think it was in 2001 when I was there. One came through. It wasn't a cyclone, but it felt like one to me. And, uh, and we lived in this valley. I just remember seeing the clouds gathering, swirling. And they're dark, but they're also um, sort of brownish, just the amount of stuff that gets swept up in these enormous storms. And it came up and over the... the um, up and over the mountains and came through and just like the, the force, I don't just mean like the force of wind, but the force of atmosphere. Have you been in a storm? It's like you can push against the air. It's thick with electricity and charged with atmosphere and it came through and it was just devastating. The, the, the size of the water you know, like the drops of rain was immense and just everything's big. And, and then uh, the guy I was staying with who was from that area said, um, in a minute we're going to go outside. And I was like, no, in a minute you're going to go outside. And no, he said, trust me, in a minute we're going to go outside. And then all of a sudden, everything dropped. It was just like the curtain dropped on the show and just everything became still. And he's like, this is the eye. 
and we went outside. In the eye of the storm, it's just like this peace, like utter serenity. It's so weird because you can still see all around you stuff's hay- going haywire, chaos. And it's just brief, but it's like this, like time has frozen or something. And that's how I think about this pursuit of peace for us. Like, it's, it's not going to do us any good to say that there is no storm. It's not going to do us any good just to think positive thoughts. Like, no, I'm sure this world is a good place. You have to deal with what you see on the news every day. I think what Jesus in his first and second advent, what he gives us for the here and now is a kind of eye of the storm experience that is, unlike the eye of the storm, can be an experience of more often than not peace. Rather than hurry and panic and busyness punctuated by peace when the kids are out of the house or when you get that holiday to the beach or whatever, but rather the inverse of that, peace, life characterized by the Jesus-shaped, discipleshiped him, light, yoke kind of peace that will be, I'm afraid, punctuated by seasons of chaos. But in order for us to take hold of that, first of all, we must believe what the angel said. We must put our trust ultimately in the final, eternal peace that Jesus will bring. And in the meantime, we must cultivate peace by reconciliation and surrender and meditation and prayer. So that's what I'm going to do for us now. I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for this gathering of your people and thank you for this church that's marked by grace and by provision and by the presence of your spirit. And Lord, all I want to pray is that we would, each one of us, individually and collectively as a church, uh, as households, small groups, Lord, that we would please this week of all weeks come to terms with what it means to live at peace. Please give us energy. Um, Please provide every resource we need to do the work of cultivating peace. And please help us as a church to make this a community endeavour, not all of us out there on our own doing our best, but rather helping one another cultivate peace by making all of life all about Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Give you a couple of minutes now to reflect on what you've heard and to ask God for his gift of peace.
could wash these doubts away Who could save me from my folly Your 